Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. I'm Adam and welcome to Obscurios, an occasional Retrotube spin-off podcast in which I talk to guests about the stranger, darker and dustier corners of archive television. If you listened to our Children of the Stones episode, you may remember that Heather isn't a huge fan of the spooky stuff, so while she spends the day tucked up with a mug of cocoa and a DVD of Dog Tanyon and the Three Musker Hounds, I'm talking to Alex Pearson about one of the more unsettling examples of mid-80s school programmes. Alex is a writer, one-time podcaster, Doctor Who fan and horror aficionado. In her past life, she would present and chair events at Blackwell's Bookshop in Oxford, and she could be heard on the Blackwell's own in-house podcast. I particularly recommend the 2019 Halloween Spooky Books special. Hello, Alex. Hello. And what are you currently up to? So currently, I've decided in the middle of a pandemic to move down to Plymouth. Um, and start doing a master's in English literature. So, yeah, so now I have an excuse for reading and buying all of those books. <laughs> so we watched a three-part drama called Interference, which was shown in 1985 as part of ITV's Middle English. Alex, did you ever watch anything like this when you were at school? I was trying to remember. I don't... So I was four when this came out, so I started school the next year. And I think we we did watch similar things, but I don't remember this. No, I didn't see this one, but we did. I think we watched fairly tame ones. I don't think they ever attempted to traumatise us at our school. So they definitely did attempt to traumatise us because we right. watched one, which was set in a Welsh mining village, I think. And there'd been a terrible disaster in the mine. And then wow. this was sort of 50 years later. And basically when anything terrible was about to happen, the pipes would all start like singing with the dead voices of the miners. And I remember being terrified by that. Blimey. Why did they show children this stuff? It, <laughs> that it's a really, really good question. Like what, what, what was I meant to learn from that? Don't go down mines. <laughs> no. do, you, do you remember the title of that? Joe, I was talking to my brother about it. He's a couple of years older and was at the same school and was also made to watch it. It was called something like Children of the Mines. Or... Yes, they usually have that sort of title, don't they? Yeah, I remember having to go to the girls' loo just after this had happened and being mm. in there and it was sort of an old Victorian school building and all the pipes started making weird noises, and I was terrified. <laughs> Job done. Yeah. <laughs> that was my sort of big question while watching this one, was what was the purpose of this as an educational yeah. show? Clearly there were teachers' notes and there was something to be learned, but I have no idea what it, what it might be. No, it just seems, yeah, just designed to sort of disturb and or terrify. So it's... Um... Three episodes long, 15 minutes each, and it's very definitely a school programme. So the copy we watch on YouTube, it starts with the uh, the blue and white clock with the little tic-tacs that disappear gradually as the clock goes around. See, I remember, I think by the time I was watching them, there was a, an actual like countdown clock. Oh. Like there were numbers flashing down, because I remember we would all sit there and act like countdown from 10. I went in with no expectations at all. Good, this is the way I like it. Yeah, and was sort of pleasantly surprised and in the first episode i kept projecting ahead what i thought was going to happen which was much more terrifying and or upsetting and also completely wrong <laughs> but yeah i actually got to really like i liked the characters in ah. not all of them but most yeah, of them no. they do grow on you don't they they do they do i really liked i liked Anne, the youngest one i feel like mm. i could imagine being her in that situation it starts off very, very jolly. The music is extremely jolly. Yeah, I just wrote, lovely, gentle reggae. <laughs> Isn't it? It's, well, the, the actual, so it's it's the Middle English strands. So that will be the whole Middle English educational programming, which has all these little dramas in it. And that has a very jolly kind of ragtime, boogie, piano, sting. And it's very, gets you in the mood for something really light and upbeat and friendly. <laughs> Thank you. 
and then uh, Interference itself has this uh, sort of cheesy TV reggae. It reminded me a little bit of Pigeon Street, that kind of vibe. Yeah, I think I wrote a note somewhere that was just, yeah, this theme is so 80s TV. <laughs> It is Traveller's Rest. Yes, it's very much in that kind of mid-80s thing when they're starting to try and be a bit more inclusive, so there was a bit more kind of reggae and that kind of thing and not just classical music and flute and synthesizers. <laughs> but having said that, when we actually see the family there, the, the world's blondest family, so the reggae is slightly jarring with actually this incredibly blonde family that roll up. Yeah, absolutely, and the rest of the story as well. Mm. Although, Because until the music kicked in... You know, the first shot you see is this little car driving down a B road. And I instantly had this, like, I felt at home. I felt like I was watching the Avengers. Ah, yeah. It has that kind of rural menace to it, doesn't it? This really sort of beautiful, picturesque, lush green countryside and the the gorgeous little cottage. I really like the cottage. I want to live there. I think the trouble was at the beginning, I was terrified of everything because everything seemed creepy. And I've seen so many horror films that have started with family going out into the middle of nowhere mm. and when they said it's called traveler's rest i literally yes. my note just says oh dear <laughs> so i was like this, this this is all gonna go horribly wrong for them i just wrote in huge capitals what's in the shed <laughs> traveler's rest it does have that ben wheatley folk horror sort of vibe to it doesn't it that you can imagine kind of 17th century hangings going on in there and that kind of thing yeah absolutely but it's yeah it's lovely to look at it is it's really beautiful Mm, it's really well shot the the scenes of the countryside are very gorgeously filmed and the i like the i like the chimneys of the cottage particularly they're all different yes and it looks like if you if you were just to tell someone to draw a pretty cottage it would look like this. Definitely. And there's a beautiful garden around it. it. It's very idyllic. Yeah. And I think that's really nice because often with things that are a bit spooky, they'll lean into it. So it'll be like, they'll turn up and go, oh no, this tumble down cottage in the middle of this creepy woods, we got to live here. But actually they turn up and it's really beautiful and you do, you would really want to live there. And it's the, it's the sunniest day you can imagine. And It's a beautiful summer. It's but, you know, they're going to have a lovely time. But you can tell that... Because my initial thought was they're quite an unappealing family. <laughs> I know you'd like them, but I sort of found them... Because they were just generally a bit on edge and a bit snippy towards each other. And that kind of slightly running joke where the two older siblings both shout shut up at the younger sister simultaneously, which is set up as a charming gag, but kind of comes off as a bit as bullying. Oi! What? Where do you think you're going? I need to look around. Might be secret passages in there. It's hardly room for a secret cupboard. Hardly room for a secret cupboard. Shut up. Might be ghosts. Well, look, just have a quick squint round and then we'll start moving the stuff in, OK? Yeah, from, from very early on, there's clearly something going on in the family, something to do with the dad. Yes, there's the sort of just the, the reactions when dad is mentioned and that kind of thing. And I love the way that he's set up he doesn't appear on screen for the whole first episode. You just hear a lot about Dad and like, oh, let's call Dad. No, don't call Dad. Don't don't bother him. And he's this sort of like absent phantom. The, it's like the younger daughter is like, oh, when's he coming? When's he coming? But then you mm. realise the older children aren't necessarily looking forward to it. She's really excited for some reason. And Mum is not very keen on the idea either. No. And I did at one point in my crazy speculation have this moment of like is he real mm. has he di- are they all dead or is he dead <laughs> <laughs> i've definitely decided that someone was dead with you've either watched too many horror films or i i excessively prompted you <laughs> ahead of this of, <laughs> this is going to be something unsettling <laughs> because i think for for children sitting down on the you know on the 
the whole floor with the big telly on its wheels at school, they would have no expectations at all. So they would be just go, oh, this looks pleasant. It's, you know, this families they've turned up to holiday cottage everything's bright and it's a very mundane opening in a good way yeah it just seems this is their holiday and you know they're here for the summer and then they'll be coming back weekends so it could very easily be a story just about them settling into rural life yes until mum tries to open the padlock of the shed which has the generator in at which point the creepy sinister incidental music starts to just bubble under. That's it, and you know. You know there's something bad happening with that shed. And the whole first episode does spend a lot of time wrong-footing the audience, I think, doesn't it? Which is interesting. I think it's actually more kind of sophisticatedly written, if that's a word, than it appears at first, because it does... I think so. it, You've got, you know, you've got the gentle reggae music, you've got the beautiful summer's day, you've got this family who look, they're out some kind of butter advert or something (laughs) they do don't they then the shed thing happens and you're suddenly like oh no and then they start talking about the dad and all these things that are clearly not right start creeping in and Anne, the youngest is obsessed by the idea of there being a ghost so you get this idea that there's something horrifying in the shed and that there's probably a ghost that's and she's She's looking for graves. Yeah, she's got a cricket bat and she's hunting under like the overgrown plants and because she really wants the house to be haunted. I, I was so... I was Anne. I still am Anne. I think I really identified with her all the way through this. Mm. And the fact that she really wants it, but then actually when spooky things start happening, she cannot cope at all. She's not very keen on it when it does actually happen because it's not... It's not what she... I think she was wanting, like, a, a floating spirit. That's it. She wants, she wants Casper. She does. Or, like, a, a nice, hearty medieval or a you know 17th century haunting. She wants, like, a, a dead cavalier roaming the hallway. She doesn't want some horrible... Yeah. And that, to, that's what I was expecting. I was expecting some sort of historical figure, some, I don't know, dairy maid or farm boy or something to turn up and become friends with them this was another one of my many guesses Mm. and if you've seen enough of the kind of 80s children's dramas that were shown like in the main children's bbc strand actually this is an itv show but the main strand of children's strands that you got then that would be how it panned out because that was often things like Box of Delights and Children of Green No Mm. and Moon Dial that you would get like the main characters would befriend friendly children ghosts with a tragic past yeah i feel like i've seen that story is it um oh what's it called moondial moondial yeah i love that yeah this is very much it has a real mid-80s feel you can tell it's 1985 from everything that happened <laughs> you can can't you? and i actually i one of the things i wrote down that i really loved a lot of just the incidental little things to see like uh when the kids go to the local shop called pratt's stores Outside, there's a triangular R. White lemonade bin. And that's so nostalgic. I love seeing things like that. Do you know, yeah, I had, there was, I ended up doing this little list of things that you just don't get anymore. Because I got very nostalgic by the red telephone box. Yes, that's one of my things. That was great. And then when he's, um, when Chris, the son, is talking to his gran, and I mean, it's actually the ghost interfering but it's, he's like, oh, we've got a cross line. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten that was a thing. Like cross lines and even like interference in that kind. It's just something that doesn't happen in the same way on a digital world. It doesn't at all, does it? No, the, the, the idea of ghosting and particularly a bit later when they see the face on the TV and they can't get rid of it. And when people would have seen this in the 80s, that would have been much more of a sort of a credible phenomenon. You would get ghosting. You'd see other TV programmes and you'd flip through the channels and you wouldn't be able to find that TV programme. So you're getting interference from somewhere else. Yeah, It was like they mentioned in this that like from overseas that you'd be just picking up just the very corners of a some other broadcast. Yeah, I remember we used to get a lot of Spanish radio at one point. Really? When I lived in London, it would, and, you, you, and it would interfere like with the radio station you were trying to listen to, but you also couldn't tune into that properly. So it would just be this very annoying sort of Spanish speaking over Radio 4. I remember watching TV once and we we had some ghosting on and it was because normally it would be clearly another programme. It would be a Western or something like that and you'd be able to make out the cuts. 
and you'd be able to make out the Stetsons and the different angles. Even if you can quite clearly see all the details, you could say, oh, that's picking up a Western from somewhere. But I was watching TV once and it was just endless panning shots of bookshelves. Oh, and there were no cuts in it and there's no presenter or anything like that. And it was going on for minutes at a time, just endless panning shots. And I had no idea what it was. And that is mysterious. Yeah, it was very... I, I never sort of... I, I'm not inclined to think of things as being hauntings, but you do wonder who was just panning a camera across bookshelves or whether bookshelves can actually f- like physically broadcast themselves <laughs> in some way onto your television, which seems unlikely. So somebody somewhere was just slowly panning across endless bookshelves. It's definitely ghosts, Adam. It's definitely ghosts. I think actually, in retrospect, you could be right. I yeah. think it could, could really have been ghosts. Is this like this the visual equivalent of those numbers channels? It was a bit, yeah. Lincolnshire poacher and that kind of thing. We've we've stumbled across a real mystery here. We have. We we have to abandon this podcast to try and get to the (laughs) bottom of exactly what that mystery was. I love that kind of spooky thing where you would just sort of sit in the dark and listen to something or watch something really mysterious going on and you couldn't quite... Yeah, listen to this phrase of music endlessly repeating or just voices in the dark saying numbers and that kind of thing. Yeah, I find those so creepy. I do. I love it. <laughs> it's that like I just I just want to know why it's happening. Mm. But then maybe you don't want to know why it's happening. But I also loved just seeing the bits and bobs of ephemera. I I liked that Chris the boy is wearing a keyboard digital watch which I don't think you get anymore. Is he? I used to have one of those. Oh, I was always really jealous of people that had those. Yeah, I think me and my me and my brother both had one and my brother kept it until his just stopped working. And the funny thing with those is I feel like the, it, that was the kind of 80s equivalent of now you can get all these, you know, fancy watches where you can take phone calls and messages and I have absolutely no interest in having one of those. Those buttons always seemed a little bit fiddly as well. They were very... And I think it's okay when you're a kid and you've got little fingers, but I think when as an you're adult... you old, you're just mashing this. Like, <laughs> no. Buying pink paraffin was also quite nostalgic. That was one of those things that I have very distant memories probably from about like 1984 1985 of mm. like going to the shops and my dad coming back with big bottles of pink paraffin and like the smell of it the smell of it's very nostalgic and i was always fascinated the fact that you could either get pink paraffin or blue paraffin and i was never quite sure of the difference and i love that the the shop woman i'm assuming it's her shop that she's she's just so nice she and is she nice, isn't says, she? oh, you should get these, you know, you need firewood, have some fire starters because it will be damp. And then he appears to give her about 50p for it all, which was also amazing. <laughs> which does remind me of another thing, another note that I made, because it's one of the things I love in TV and film where you have a family who have presumably all grown up together. And then one of the children has a remarkably different accent to the others. <laughs> yes. Because, I mean, Anne's accent sort of wavered a bit. Chris sounded very London. Anne mainly sounded London when she got to it. B sounded as if maybe she'd been at, like, some very posh finishing school. B talks like um, uh, Jenny Agatha. Yes. Yeah, so her and the mum, both, like, very well-spoken. Mm. And it was just like, what's? have you spent all your money sending B to some very posh school where they also seem to have taught her how to fix generators and start fires yes. whereas chris spends all his time with the local uh, comprehensive kids yeah he's got a bit more of a grange hill accent hasn't he absolutely yeah <laughs> it's all electric her mum found that key gonna be in stuck if she can't start the generator yeah they're foolproof these days i can probably get it going not if you can't get into the shed clever did you notice that uh, Chris wears rings. I did. He seems to have like a signet ring on on either hand. Which seems like a very unusual thing for a boy his age. Yeah. Did 10-year-olds wear rings in 1985? I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't remember that being a thing. And yeah, and then the fact is not commented on at all. But must have been someone in the costume department. Maybe they were like, we're going to make signet rings for 10-year-olds a fashion. (laughs) Yes. He's also a bit of a Luddite. He loves, like, he must be the only child, must be the only young boy in 1985 who doesn't want the TV on and he doesn't want the radio on and he's happy just sitting there with the fire scene, on. The scene where they're all just sitting by the fire before the horrible dad has turned up and 
he's paying patience and Chris is just sitting next to his mum and it's just when he just goes like, oh, this is so nice. I want it to be like this forever. And that really warmed my heart. Oh, that did remind me a bit of when you get power cuts and that kind of thing. You'd just be sitting there and there'd be no distractions. and You'd have the fire on. And But I think I always secretly did want the TV to come back at some point. So I didn't miss any Doctor Who or that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's it. It's nice for a little bit if nothing else is happening and you can have a nice talk and you know you can tell stories and do those things but yeah the idea that it might be like that forever the the bit when Anne is upset and she goes and just sits in the garden and has a big strop Mm. again I was just like yes because I used to go and sit (laughs) we lived in a Victorian vicarage and if I was feeling upset about something I used to go and sit halfway up the stairs by a window very much in the like, I just am going to sit here and be sad, but I want everyone to notice that I'm doing it. <laughs> and that, it just reminded me of that. Chris is slightly uncanny. He says, it's like hospital. They wake you up to give you a sleeping pill. That's an uncanny thing for a 10-year-old boy to say. It's weird because also he wasn't asleep. No, <laughs> he was just... They were all very much awake and talking to each other. He's a strange boy. I like the little, the, the, the little kind of thing where uh, Beatty's doing patience and she says it never comes out right which is also like it pays off a bit later but it's also sort of nice it's full of nice little details like that yeah that scene it's it's great because it's also I think at some point says someone's like oh his dad coming tomorrow Mm. and the mum's a bit like uh yeah which might be when I wrote my is this a story about a really an abusive relationship note Ah. the vibe about the dad turning up was so confusing and increasingly negative. That's it. They're sort of, or Anne is kind of looking forward to it, or she is looking forward to it, and Chris really wants to call. And then, of course, Chris has the phone call with him where, like, the phone call he has goes downhill very quickly. Very. He, the dad is so horrible to Chris, like, particularly horrible to him amongst all the three children. Yes, he seems to like Anne. Yeah. He despises poor chris just hates him yeah i think the first time you see him is that at the end of the first episode or the beginning of the second and he's like oh what's the emergency your son chris felt the need to call your much loved son yes yeah that's the end of the first episode isn't it so he turns so that yes there's the whole bit with the torch where the torch just starts pulsing to the approximate rhythm of a heartbeat yes and it's like 70, chris, 74 times a minute yeah chris again he says that generators just like a heart they seem to accept that it's it's haunted straight away don't they it's like oh torches just should do this it's probably haunted yeah i love the bit when he's like because b's trying to be very rational she's like she's got her head screwed on and she's like maybe it's the bulb maybe it's the battery maybe it's this and chris is like no, He's like, no it's haunted <laughs> it's definitely ghosts i like the 80s idioms so she says that uh it, it's a ghost that's haunting the torch and it's feeding off the electricity and chris says it can't get much nosh out of a torch battery you don't hear the word nosh very often these days no and he says gordon bennett at one point yeah and are you out of your tree yeah i think these need to come back yeah, they're straight out of the Beano, some of these expressions, aren't they? <laughs> like, to that point where I'm like, did people actually say those things in the 80s? Or was this just like the way that children were meant to speak? This is true. I can't remember. I was one of them, but I can't remember how <laughs> I spoke. I certainly didn't say Gordon Bennett. No, and I don't think I ever said Nosh either. <laughs> no, I don't think I did. <laughs> but I do not. I feel in some ways it's quite a modern story. Like the idea that it feeds off the electricity mm. and it's kind of and you know we'll, we'll get to it so we feeding off their unhappiness as well it's real that's quite kind of a modern idea i think it, it's not the spirit of some scorned lover or anything no it's a very present kind of spirit rather than some historical thing isn't it it's like an immediacy ghost or like you know it's not a reflection of some past thing it's a reaction to a current set of emotions yeah which i think is it's really interesting and yeah, possibly kind of there's more there than you get a chance to think about in this, you know, three fifteen minutes. So the episode ends with, uh, this is only 15 minutes long so far, but there's a lot of content for 15 minutes. But the episode ends with Dad turning up at about one thirty in the morning and Beatty and Chris's reaction to him arriving really sells it. I think it's a genuinely scary moment when he pulls up and it's the first time Dad has physically been in it. 
we don't even see him till episode two, but we hear his voice. Yeah, and they were so kind of stressed that I really thought that wasn't going to be their dad and was going to be mm. some intruder or something. But um, no, he's quite bad enough on his own. I've timed it. 74 to the minute. Like a heartbeat. I suppose a generator's like a great big heart. It's Dad. Hang on, wait, I'm coming. All right, then. Where's the emergency? What emergency? What are you doing here, Ken? I get back exhausted from Derby, expecting one night's peace, and what do I find? Well, I didn't ask you to come. It seems you can't manage even the simplest bit of organisation. Well, there was still no need to travel through the night. You're coping quite well, thank you. Your much-loved son didn't seem to think so. And I think just the fact that it... Like, the fact that he's turned up at this hour of the morning, they know that's trouble. The fact he's... I mean, the whole your much-loved son made it sound like there was some terrible emergency. We've heard Chris's side of that conversation, and Chris says, we'll be fine, like, it's not a big deal. But it's like the dad is just like, oh, clearly they can't cope for five minutes without me. I'm just going to make a big meal out of everything. I'm going to just turn this into a big drama. Yeah, he's just awful. And so when we have the em- the ending music, which goes back to the jolly reggae, it's really jarring. Yeah, really. Because at the do, beginning, do, do, do. it's summery and it's the journey and it's lovely. But And we don't know what to expect yet. Yeah. yeah. It's just this horrible man bellowing at some hour of the morning and then dooby doo doo. Yeah. So then we have episode two, which is kind of like the core episode. This is when we really get to see Dad. Yeah, the first thing I wrote here was it's taken a dark turn and not in a good way because he was so vile and I instantly just became enraged. And then my second note is Pat, which is the mum's name, just take the kids and leave. But I do like the the fact that he isn't 100% like a raving maniac because he's not two-dimensional they do show bits where he has moments of joy with his kids well i say with his kids with with Anne, with the small one there's a couple of moments where he picks her up and spins around and goes wee and like he he seems genuinely delighted by her company and early on in episode two there's a couple of moments where he's quite relaxed and he's like oh okay, yeah, i'm gonna switch on the generator i've got the key don't worry and all that kind of thing and i think it's that thing though as soon as something isn't going his way or as soon as he perceives any kind of problem or disobedience, he goes from like zero to 100 in a split second. Yeah. And that probably makes him even scarier. And then he also is very stubborn. Like he, like he insists on having the radio on <laughs> with the wailing yes. and the lights on as they're pulsing. Yeah, and I love the decision they had... Uh to have the lights pulsing throughout because that really gets under your skin just the fact that almost the entire of the two episodes this episodes two and three they spend with the lights just pulsing on and off which would drive you mad there are moments when the jolly music comes back in so when dad's in a good mood the jolly music just comes in as if nothing's happened yeah which is very disconcerting off we go It was. It was weirdly sort of more disconcerting. And, you know, they don't have a lot of time to tell these stories. And I think they do a really good job of building the characters of the children and even the mum who isn't in it a huge amount. The dad comes in, all guns blazing. And then it's like, no, we have to show that there is a reason why she has not already left him. Let's put on some nice music and have him spin this little girl around. But it's interesting as well that they're not scared of him as such. They're just really stressed out by him. So they will answer back and they'll tell him to shut up or like his wife will tell him to shut up and they will argue with him and they'll demand that he does stuff that's true actually. so they're not outright terrified of him no and it's interesting because he's bought you know they've made this decision to rent this cottage to spend the summer there but then he's bought all the mod cons <laughs> yes and then he gets really annoyed when pat is making dough 
like she's making bread and she's just doing it by hand. And he's so irritated that she's not using the food processor. <laughs> oh, it's back to the land, is it? Well, we all like homemade bread. Should I say back to the Stone Age? What do you think that's for? I thought you wanted it so badly. I do, but not for making bread. Then why do you think I got you one with dough hooks? And it is the sort of that properly walking in eggshells thing that sort of these abusive characters have where you don't know what it is that's going to set them off. Yeah. It could be anything. There's no way of predicting what the trigger will be. So even the fact that she's making bread by hand is enough to set him off screaming. Yeah. And with the interference, when I was on the TV, a number of times in episode two and three, they talk about heterodining. <laughs> yes, I don't know what that is. I what, should have looked it up. It? Heterodining. Like the first time he said it, I wrote it down because I was just like, that's a word to just drop in the middle of a show made for children. A heterodyne is a signal frequency that is created by combining or mixing two other frequencies using a signal processing technique called heterodyning. I'm none the wiser. So it's basically sort of cross signals. But because I, I also love that B then just very, very confidently says, that's not heterodyning. It's a frequency thing. She knows her stuff, doesn't she? She knows everything. I love B. She's so mm. competent and very practical, which I think to have your most practical character be the be a daughter in 1985 is quite was quite good work. Quite progressive, isn't it? Mm. I like also the first time so he uh, Chris talks to his grandma on the phone. And that's when he first hears the interference. But I like the fact that they've withheld it from the audience, so we don't hear it. He describes it. Yeah. Because so he just says it's like it's somebody crying, and then he's like a sort of wailing. A sort of wailing, and then it's somebody breathing, but they're holding their breath, or they're trying not to cry, or that kind of thing. So it's you, you're imagining it. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was even more creepy, the bit when he says it's like they were... It's like they're holding their breath like they're gasping. Yeah. I thought that's that's much creepier than someone just wailing on the line because that's yeah that was really like spooky. A line that I really enjoyed when they turn the TV on and there's this sort of ghostly face and it's on every channel and they can't get rid of it and they they you know are being still quite practical about it and saying oh you know the TV must be broken but also B says it must be one of those foreign films. You know, when nobody speaks. Yes, I like that. <laughs> it made me laugh a lot. And I was like, what? Yes. She's obviously seen the kind of films that I watch. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds you, the crying woman on the TV, have you seen David Lynch's first film, The Grandmother? Or one of his no. first films? It reminded me a lot of that. And you know you're in spooky territory if you're being reminded of early David Lynch films. Features stuck. Look, that woman, she's still there. Maybe it's a test card. No, she's crying, look. Who's crying? This woman on the screen. She's been there for ages. Oh, it must be one of those foreign films. You know, when nobody says anything. It must have got damaged. It's a coincidence. Turn it off. Yes, turn it off. Oh, what an awful sound. Yeah, I mean, that bit is really creepy. And they go back to it, I think, at the end of episode two. And the, was it me or were there more faces? Either there were lots of them or she was like fragmented or refracted into lots of different faces, like a Top of the Pops video effect kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, that was... That was quite spooky. And I think that thing where you tr they're trying to change the channel and it's just this same woman's face clearly in distress. And at this point, I'm thinking this is being watched in school by 10, 11, 12 year olds. And they're getting ghostly, wailing, haunted, disembodied old women coming from telephones and televisions from one angle. And they're getting terrifying enraged ranting father coming from the other angle this is like this is a lot this is a lot to cope with it is a lot and i think it was about this point that i reflected on where i grew up there was quite a high number of single parent families and i did wonder if the reason we hadn't watched this was because maybe it would just be a bit triggering if you if you were like a child of divorce i, I did like the chemistry between uh, b and chris 
that they're sort of like a nice problem solving team. He's a bit whiny, yeah. But other than that, they sort of they make a good team. When he comes in and finds her basically breaking the radio, and, and, and he's just like, "Yeah, good idea." Yes, that scene made me so tense. Whenever they were doing something they shouldn't be doing, it's like, "Oh my god, they're going to get caught." Well, and then when they do get caught, and the dad comes in, you know. B, bless her, has just had enough mm. and has decided to just go and destroy the generator. And then Anne, bless her, not realising what's going on, is like, B's gone, I heard some noise. <laughs> yes, accidentally daubs them right in it. Yeah. And then he runs in and calls them hooligans. Hooligans, yeah. Hooligans, which I, again, really enjoyed because I don't think I've heard anyone call anybody a hooligan. Also the phrase, what the blue bloody blazes is going on. Yeah. Which is a corker. What the blue bloody blazes is going on here? The two dinner scenes where no one can do anything at all right, I think is particularly effective. I think we might have the lights on. If it's not too much trouble. It only takes one of you. Where's the radio? In the living room. What's he doing in there? Why shouldn't it be there? Where are you going? To get the radio. I also, at that point, realised that the dad is always wearing a shirt and tie. Because ah. he's wearing a shirt and tie in that dinner scene. And then it occurred to me that actually this isn't when he's just come back from work. He has been now at the house for the whole day. And this is meant to be their kind of holiday retreat, but he's still having dinner in a shirt and tie. And So it's almost like he's a manifestation of a dad that kind of... Yeah, he's like a 50s stereotype dad. Yeah, like a, a fixed icon, a f- sort of fixed iconography that he d- he's not a real human being in that sense that he wears different clothes and gets relaxed and puts his slippers on or that kind of thing. He's always wearing the that kind of rigid dad uniform. Yeah. And his nylon slacks and that kind of thing. Yeah, and they're like a really horrible... Everything looks polyester. It does, doesn't it? Like nothing looks comfortable. Also, it was that moment where I was just like, I know I've seen this actor in like a million other things. Ah, John Bleasdale. He was a very minor Doctor Who crossover here. He played multiple robots in Robots of Death. Ah, that's exciting. As soon as he turned up, I was like, I know I've seen him in things and I know I wasn't this angry. (laughs) Samantha Holland, who played B, uh, she seems to still be a successful theatre actor. She's still doing a lot of things. That's good. Yeah, there's always that hope that you're going to realise one of them has like won an Oscar. And actually, I thought they were all good in this as well. Like, you know, having watched other similar things, the acting quality is not always very high. No. But I thought they did a good job, all things considered. For something that's essentially just a schools programme seems that people put a lot of effort into it yeah so yes we've got to the the, uh the climax at the end of episode three where b and chris sneak out at night at four in the morning or whatever it is and attempt to sabotage the generator and they get caught so it's a big five-way family standoff in the darkened generator room and you really want b to wrap the poker around (laughs) her dad's head that's it be like they they could be your alibi You'd totally get away with it. Yeah. But I like that. But I think is it Chris that basically just starts shouting, get out at him. Because he does, he slaps Chris, doesn't he? He does. I think I was in the middle of writing, he is so horrible to Chris in my notes when that happened. And I was like, see? (laughs) And I think actually when it's, it's a bit dark to tell, but I think after he does slap Chris, he suddenly looks really remorseful. Like almost like he's snapped out of snapped out of it a bit, which I guess raises the question. I mean, he comes in super hot before he's even come into the house, but mm. maybe you know whatever is feeding off the electricity and him in the house is also making him. Maybe there's a bit of a shining thing going on. Well, I wrote down that this is the shining for children. Yeah, this was my thought as well because it starts with them, of course, driving through the wilderness in their little car. So the opening shots are not similar, but it's that similar sort of thing of driving through through the countryside and trapped in this remote remote location. And the and the ghostliness is caused by that kind of emotional abuse that's been going on. I think that's an undercurrent in The Shining that is never overtly said. But I think Jack in that is probably an, ab- an abusive husband outside of the hotel as well. That's it. Yeah, their their relationship when they got the, when they get to the Overlook, he is he's an alcoholic. They're already in a bad state it's a terrible idea for them to go to this place it really is isn't it even if there weren't ghosts there and i guess this is kind of yeah it's the shining for kids so it has a happier ending in that you know they shout at him enough and you see him leave but then you have that last scene again having switched off the generator 
because I love it. Pat just comes in. She's like, no, we've had enough of that. She turns the key and then you have them again sitting around the fire, BT doing her patience. Yes. And she says, hey, that's the first time it's ever worked out. Which was lovely. Yeah. And also the line, um, it's repeated a couple of times very pointedly. There's nothing here now. So they're talking about their dad as if he's a ghost, because that's what you'd say about if you've exorcised a haunted building. You'd say, oh, there's nothing here now. And that's the context they use it. But they're talking about their dad. It's interesting, isn't it? That bit that, yeah, because they actually talk about fixing the generator rather than getting a new one, because they have the confidence that actually what was wrong was their dad being there. Absolutely. I think there's a big contrast it's a big contrast, but also a subtle contrast between that end scene of them by in front of the fire and the earlier scene, at the first episode of them in front of the fire, where they just seem a lot more relaxed now that he's gone and he's not coming. And there isn't that thing of like, dad will turn up tomorrow. And there's, even though they're enjoying relaxing in front of the fire, there's still that edge of, is dad coming? When is dad going to turn up tonight? That kind of thing. But in the second scene, when he's completely gone, they do seem like a much happier family now. Yeah, the first scene, he's very much a looming presence yes that's a good way of putting it yeah the second one he's dealt with he's gone there's nothing there anymore Mm. then i love how they check by calling up the speaking clock yes another nice 80s thing yeah is that can you is that i don't know is the speaking clock still a thing because that used to be how we like i remember setting clocks to the speaking clock like checking the time but you can go online now and just type in time and it will tell you the current well that's time it like it automatically zone. is on like you know it's on my laptop it's on my phone i don't have to ever change those i, I feel kind of sad that the speaking clock doesn't exist anymore uh, to go back to a little bit before the end there's the scene another scene where they're sitting around the dining table and it's all horrible and they're talking about interference and at this point in the video that I was watching, there was a lot of interference. <laughs> yes, same. I, yes, we were watching the same video, of course. It's, it's on YouTube for anyone who's interested in seeing this. It's, it's all 45 minutes are on YouTube if you search Middle English interference. And I was, all I could think was, is this really happening? Or has this been put on there and am I about to see a spooky ghost face? I was genuinely, you know, there, there were so many questions. and so many like, is this some you know, postmodern, it's coming out to get you moment? Or is this just someone's terrible old VHS tape? In the bit with the interference, I was sort of slowly backing away from my laptop. <laughs> You're expecting like a Japanese girl to start crawling out of the front of the Absolutely. <laughs> I was like, I've seen where this goes. I'm, I'm ready to run. Yeah, and then there'll be a you get a phone call. Yeah. If I ever told you my story about the first time I watched The Ring. No. So my brother had already seen it and he was like, it's amazing. It's terrifying. And it's interesting because he's not a big horror fan. And I am. And he had it on DVD. So we watched it. And all the way through, I was like, oh, I'm not that scared. I'm fine. But I didn't realise all like the tension was building. So at the end... I was just terrified out of my mind. Then on the DVD, there's an extra where you can watch the cursed video. And my brother, who I'm completely just shaming here, was like, let's watch it. And I was like, no. But obviously he just played it. The second it finishes, our home phone rings. (laughs) No way, you know, not for all the money in the world was I answering that. So he goes and answers it. He comes and he's like, it's for you. There's a woman's voice on the phone. And I was like, no. And it was for me and this was when I was at uni and we were living in South London I was going to be going back down to Brighton sort of later that day anyway and a friend of mine who I lived with had locked herself out and was basically calling to be like can you come back a little bit earlier and I was like yeah that's fine while I'm on the phone my brother comes out and there's a bit in the video where there's a man with like a cloth draped over his head who's pointing and I turn around my brother is standing there with this cloth over his head just pointing and I don't think he realises how close to death he was but yeah I then basically spent the next week convinced I was going to die like that film got into my head there was nothing quite like it at the time I think watching it now every film for like 15 years afterwards was basically trying to do Mm -hmm. The Ring but seeing it in was it 1999 it came out 98 something like that it was like 98 and I think then I saw it in like 2001 Uh, yeah and so like 90s horror cinema was generally things like The Haunting remake which is just full of just CGI 
faces coming out of walls and just ridiculous and to see something that was so low-key and so quiet and such a slow burn but you just can't really appreciate it now because just like every film ever since has been trying to do the ring in its own way what is interesting isn't it because yeah i've had a conversation with loads of people who don't find it that scary but i don't know whether it's just that i hit it at the right time or if it's something that just really got into my head because i think you know fear is so subjective and the things that people find really scary can be very different but yeah when that interference came on despite the fact that i'm like i'm watching a children's film from youtube i was probably like moving back in my chair just in case yeah my friend i'll give a shout out to my friend simon who sent me the link he actually sent me a link to the second episode the middle episode so i it was even more discombobulating because i didn't have any of the setup it was just it just he said watch this you'll like this i was like okay so it starts with a boy fishing in a in a small pond on a beautiful summer's day and then just a very impatient man turns up in a car and it just get it's like okay this is this reggae music it's like, <laughs> what what's what simon sent me am i going to watch this whole thing or am i just going to politely pretend i watched it when you don't know the setup you don't know what's going on just that isolated middle episode it's like what is this this is getting odder and odder like, I don't know. I'm getting quite scared. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm guessing with the like teachers pack, you'd have been like writing stories based on this, or and discussing the themes. Maybe I'm kind of. I kind of want to see what this teachers pack contained. I wonder if they still exist. If there's a copy somewhere, it's quite intriguing, isn't it? Yeah, because it just seems such a kind of a dark story that seems like it's going to be a dark story because of ghosts. Yes, but it's actually a dark story because of this angry father figure yes it's a lot less routine than you than one might be expecting mm. i'm looking at my notes to see if there's anything but yeah Anne was very much my favorite character and i think at the beginning i thought she was gonna have more to do she has a very little girl in poltergeist vibe. she does doesn't she you know i mean even that she's like she's so blonde and she's sort of playing with the stuff she wants to find the ghost but then actually when stuff starts kicking off is quite fair because she's quite little she just really freaks out and just wants to go and sit in her room where she can't see the pulsing light but also where she's away from her arguing parents i thought the scene when she's out in the garden and she's kneeling in the garden with uh, all on her own with her hands pressed over her ears is quite a strong image yeah and there's a one i think a bit earlier on where she's out there with she's got her teddy bear and her rag doll and she's playing them having a fight and i was like because i used to often play my i used to do murder mysteries and whatever with my toys so I was just like, totally normal. And then I went, oh, no, she's doing this because of her parents having all these horrible arguments. Yeah, there's lots of subtle little things. Yeah, she has these kind of, it's a really interesting role in that it starts off, you think, right, she's going to find the ghost. She's going to befriend Casper. And then actually, she's the person who's kind of most negatively affected by what's happening, but unable to do anything about it because she's just a little kid. And I think she's the one who most likes her dad. The other two are kind of past that. They just don't really like him. Yeah, because he's he's still nice to her. And I think whereas he's kind of, I mean, he's awful to Chris. He's horrible to Beatty. But he's still nice to Anne. And I wonder if it's just like in a few years time, had things carried on, she's a bit older and then he's not going to be as nice to her anymore. When I first saw it, I thought the ending was a bit weak. And it's like, oh, it just finished and he's left. And we never found out about the crying woman. But actually, no, it makes perfect emotional sense. Like once I'd kind of thought about it a bit, it's like, oh, no, that is a perfect ending. It's all in there. Did you ever see um, Look and Read and Words and Pictures, which were two similar things? Yeah. Which had the little drama stories and were often quite tense and scary but it was just about learning how to spell words yeah because then they'd like pause wouldn't they like someone would yeah. say something and they'd pause it and be like here's how you spell whatever i was about Brick. to say divorce which they probably didn't say <laughs> <laughs> yeah tammy winnett has knows how to spell divorce <laughs> yeah so yeah you get this really you get children being kidnapped and being menaced by criminals and they'd be in danger and then you pause and it'd be wordy floating around going oh here's how to spell brick <laughs> How did we all survive the 80s? Jan Mark, who wrote it, is like a Carnegie award-winning children's writer. Oh, really? Yeah, who wrote a lot of things in like the 70s and 80s. Um, and then I looked her up and I think she adapted it. She wrote it and then adapted it into a play, but I think possibly afterwards. Right. So, you know, you can get like collections of her short stories and like quite a lot of her stuff still in print. I hadn't read any of them. It was Thunder and Lightning that won the Carnegie and I think another one called The Handler, I think. Um, but she wrote 
a lot of stuff and she's yeah there's a collection of short stories i think that's around at the moment available from your local bookseller well thank you for listening and thank you alex for coming on and talking about interference oh, it was a real pleasure thank you for having me people can get in touch with us here at RetroTube. we're on twitter retro underscore tube uh and you can see all our details on there there is also an email address i can't remember what it is heather always deals with that stuff but she's not here so i'm panicking and I don't know where everything is kept, but everything's on our Twitter page anyway. And listen to one of the regular episodes, you'll get all the details. And Alex, are you on Twitter? Is anywhere people can contact you? Or I don't know if you want to be contacted. Yeah, I am. If you follow me on Twitter, I am at Memento Maureen on Twitter. I basically put it together while watching... Have you seen The Grey with Liam Neeson? Uh, my sister's a big fan. My sister loves wolves. Yeah, so I was watching that and I was coming up with my Twitter handle and not really paying attention to anything. So it was meant to be like memento, as in memento mori. But I really wasn't paying attention, so it's momento with an O. Ah. And then Maureen. Thank you to everyone for listening, and I will be back with another Obscurio at some point, but do tune in for our regular RetroTube episodes when Heather will be back. And in the meantime, have a great day. Goodbye. Goodbye. That'll do it. Perfect. This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almonby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almonby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Dead Ink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.